Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. The episode you're about to hear has been previously recorded with either a live or online audience and edited for length and clarity. To listen to the full conversation, simply go to our website at ttf.org. So whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. We're delighted to welcome back our guest whose new book, Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making, explores the relationship between making, knowing, and loving. He claims that artistry and creativity are not only formative, but even liturgical, in that they shape our understanding of, orientation towards, and love for both the great creator and his creation. And he concludes, I have come to believe that unless we are making something, we cannot know the depth of God's being or God's grace. It's a fascinating and a challenging summons, and it's hard to imagine who could make it with more imagination or insight than our guest today, Makoto Fujimura. Mako is an internationally renowned visual artist, author, and arts advocate whose lavishly textured and pigmented works are exhibited in museums and galleries all around the world. He is the founder of the International Arts Movement, also known as I Am, now called I Am Culture Care, and has served for many years as a presidential appointee to the National Council of the National Endowment for the Arts. Mako is also an author whose works include Refractions, A Journey of Faith, Art and Culture, and his just released work, Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making, which we've invited him here today to discuss. I'll also add, as we are very proud of this, that Mako is a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. Mako, welcome. Great to see you. Great to be back, Sherry. Thank you for uh, having this conversation. Absolutely. So let's just dive right in. For most of us, a theology of making sounds somewhat alien or at least unusual. So what is a theology of making? And how uh, do you believe that the act of creation itself enables us to better know the original and great creator? Yeah, so as an artist, I have, especially when I came into faith as a follower of Christ in my 20s, I started to read the Bible and I I read it through twice, actually. I was so excited uh, to know about this faith as a new follower of Christ. And then as I was reading, I, I, I was realizing that much of what I had understood as an artist actually helps to understand the Bible because the the God of the Bible is the creator. And I was especially interested in writings by William Blake and others who seem to say that God is the artist. They find, uh, you know, Vincent van Gogh said Christ is the greatest artist. He, He painted not with paint, but 
people. And, and so, you know, I, I had this vague notion that this creator might be someone that through Christ I am, I have access to, but as a creator or create, you know, and continue to create, there's a way of reading the Bible, which is called theology of making, that really uh, understands biblical truth through the act of making. And so I was naturally doing this, right? And I was, I was um, talking to my friends or even sometimes I get asked by, by a church to teach a class. And every time I would, would talk about a passage or even give a message, you know, I, I am drawn to passages particularly that opens up when you understand God is the artist, perhaps the only artist true artist because God can create something out of nothing. But we are also invited to be co-creators in a, with a small C. And, and so that relationship is a vast invitation that, you know, I, I'm reading the Bible and I'm thinking, my goodness, is, is, this can't be true because this kind of invitation sounds so outrageous especially to someone that is, you know, outside of faith or, or thinking like, well, I don't deserve this God or I don't, I don't fit in, you know, in a religious paradigm. And yet it's an invitation given by Jesus himself, you know, when he says, consider the lilies of the field when they are, you know, in utter distress of their time, you know, fighting their scarcity battles, their, you know, zero-sum game. And yet Jesus seems to point to the sky and look at, look at the birds of the air. And so as an artist, I'm responding to that and saying, oh my goodness, this person of Jesus is also a remarkable artist in, in the way that he, just like Van Gogh said. Mm-hmm. And so I would talk about these things at, at times and people would look at me, you know, funny, like I, <laughs> because I, I'm reading these passages in Exodus 31, 32, where Bezeron and Holiab is uh, creating the tabernacle and specific dimension it's given with materials, everything it is laid out. For an artist, this is, like, this is like a glorious picture of understanding God. And yet I talk to my friends about it and they're like, oh, I, I skipped that part, qubits. I, I don't know what qubit is. You know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, do you realize what you're missing? You know, because, because a qubit is you know, this and you know, they used to measure Pharaoh's arm and now they're me- measuring Moses' arm, the creator tabernacle, you know, and, and so I, I go on and on, and, and um, you know, I, I learned to kind of not say those things in church, because people misunderstand, you know, well, he's just a crazy artist, but, but then at some point, I realized that this is fundamentally part of the narrative of scripture, and in fact, those dimensions were given at the same time that the Decalogue was given, Right, so Moses came down to Mount Sinai with this dimension, and he appointed Bezer and Horiab, you know, who literally used the melted down golden calf to build the tabernacle. So this is part of God's way of communicating to us and God's invitation for us to create something to communicate back to God. But we miss that because we're talking about this transactional reality or, uh, or a truncated view of the gospel. And when I, when I read N.T. Wright's writings on discourse on res- the resurrection, I, I was just blown away. You know, I, I was privileged to meet him and really study under him. Mm-hmm. 
but when, when he talks about the new creation, he's talking about this kind of artistry and mastery that God invokes in us. And, and so that means our artists are really important <laughs> for the new creation, that like we are supposed to be one of the leaders, just like Bezerra and Holier were in their time, we are supposed to be the kind of people who see beyond and, and can bring in the new creation to our world and our churches and our worship depends on that. So when I see the, as, as we talked about before in cultural care dialogue, when the plights of artists are today exiled into the margins, when they, they feel like they don't fit into the, you know, either the church culture or, you know, they, they are suspect, you know, because they talk about these, you know, ways of understanding even scripture differently perhaps. And so I, I started to write about this. I started in, in that it's basically my life work is what you have in your hand. It's actually one third of what I had written that my editor did a fine job of compressing <laughs> so, so that we have, you know, digestible pieces because I, I, I just keep observing in the Bible that this is an amazing uh, manual, amazing entry into new creation. You know, it's interesting. You speak a little bit about just sort of the truncated view that we have outside of artistry. And one of the things you mentioned in your book is that I think you put it this way, that we as a culture are in need of epistemological therapy, uh, which is sort of a big word, but I guess basically to examine the roots of what we assume to be knowledge. And so I wanted to ask you about essentially that gap or, yeah. or that difference between uh, informational knowing, which is sort of what you know, we as uh, efficient Western people often sort of focus on, and relational knowing, or even somatic knowing, kind of the knowing you know yes. with your hands. Yes. What is it that we can know through through making mm -hmm. that would be inaccessible to us through proposition or argument? Yeah. So that, that's quoting my good friend, philosopher Esther Meek there. Her writings on epistemology has, has really been very significant. Part of my journey toward what I, what I call somatic knowledge or you know, theology of making. That, so the easiest way is, is one of the examples that I, I use in the book you know, is when, when I moved to Princeton, I, I had chickens and they, they had eggs. You know, and, and so I'm like, wow, this is fresh eggs. You know, I, you know, it's hard to get in New York City. Now I, I have them every day. So how do you make an omelet, right? <laughs> so I look on YouTube and I, I see Jack Papin making omelets, you know, and, and as you know, omelet is the simplest recipe, right? It's just the egg. But <laughs> and yet I mess it up all the time. <laughs> exactly right. Like I, I copy everything Jack Papin's doing and my omelet does not come anything close to. <laughs> so the informational recipe, right? does not translate necessarily to, to the actual making. And furthermore, the real test isn't tasting. You know, even if it looks good, when you taste it, if it's not good, then it's, you failed, right? Now, let's look at the information age and what we have done to any kind of truth, but also the biblical truth, right? We have taken the recipe and we argue over the recipe, <laughs> you know, we create denominations or various ways that we interpret, you know, salt. And, and, and then, you know, we never ask, what's the fruit? You know, what are you creating? 
because of your your faith in that recipe and and that seems rather strange we all understand that the test of uh, recipe for omelet is the omelet and it's not just the omelet it's how the omelet tastes right is it good if it's good, you can kind of trace back <laughs> to, oh, this is how you made it. I want to learn that because this tastes good. But we don't do that with knowledge. So what Esther Meek is saying, in, in a, we have this epistemological default where we create binaries all the time. When we say, you know, left versus right, African-Americans against white communities. I mean, all these things are false binaries that we create to satisfy our lust for certainty, which is also, I'm quoting a friend of mine, Bruce Herman, but it, it's really a, a tendency that in post-industrial times, we have come to this positioning that uh, because of fear, we are concerned about ever-shrinking territories of anything, including culture, because we think unless we do this, you know, we're going to lose everything. But the problem is not so much the concerns we have about culture, but this default position that we created, forcing everybody to have to take a position, demonize the other side to, to justify their positions. And this happens in academia. This happens, you know, street corners, conversation between neighbors. This, this is happening in, in culture at large. So Esther points to that. I borrow her to talk about, okay, so what is somatic knowledge? You know, how do we get to theology of making rather than theology that perhaps we argue over? There's nothing wrong with discerning and, you know, even arguing over something. But the test is in the fruit of making. So, you know, how, how are we doing is first question, you know, like, how am I doing? How are we doing collectively? How is our culture doing? But also, uh, you know, if you, if you care about the church, we should be asking how is our church doing in producing good fruit into the culture at large, not just ourselves, but culture at large. How, when they taste the omelet, is it good? <laughs> oh, there's and, so much. So much to unpack there. Let, let yeah. me ask you about, of course, you know, sort of the ultimate fruit. I mean, it, the Bible says that they will know we are Christians by our love. So let me ask you about the role of love in all of this. You know, in your book, you describe the creation of the world as God singing the world into being with the song being a love poem. And it actually made me think about Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement that love, I'm sorry, that love is the, the most, irresist, most irresistibly creative power uh, in the universe. And so I wanted to ask you about both love and the act of creating. If love evokes creativity, does the act of making also help us to love? Or if not, how should we understand the connection between them? Yeah. So as an artist, you know, artist is struggling with ego part and self-expression, controlling that kind of ego identity versus what poet Lewis Hyde uh, calls in his book, The Gift, art is fundamentally a gift. Uh, you receive it, you give it away. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with putting it in a transactional market. But when we lose that sense, which what he's saying is art is based in love, you know, mm -hmm. and, and creation is based in love. When you, when you start with Genesis, 
And when you see a God creating, right? We kind of read those passages and say, oh, God created in seven days. Right? I mean, and we argue over that, right? But, but fundamentally, what God is doing is creating something that God doesn't need at all, which we don't fully understand because we, we tend to create things out of our need, right? But God doesn't need us. God doesn't need creation. God doesn't need the universe. So why did God create? Well, God created because he is purely love. And love exudes. Love is gratuitous. God, you know, so I, I, I give this example. I'm invited to speak at a boy's high school, you know, once in a while. And I, I you know, these high school students are sitting around like rolling their eyes because, you know, what artist is coming. So, you know, what's the big deal, right? So I say, well, guys, you know, you need the arts because if you're going on a date, you know, you don't do accounting. You don't do engineering. No, you take the ladies out to museums, listen to concerts. And if you don't understand music and art and, you know, and beauty, you're going to be at a loss <laughs> because love by definition is something that goes way outside of utilitarian values and efficiencies and industrial bottom lines. It has to. So we all know that. <laughs> so why are we so caught up in this sense um, of you know, wanting to please God and follow Christ and only be so concerned about our bottom lines of survival? You know, when God has released us from all this already and when we love, uh, I think we make. That's just, <laughs> that's just the way we are made. And so we make, and then when we receive that making, we make again, right? So that, that kind of is, is what Lewis Hyde is talking about, this gift economy. When, when the world is full of those kinds of gifts, not just for transactional reasons, but for reasons of love, then the community comes alive because the fruit of the spirit is alive and visible in your community. And so that's, that's the real test is do we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control? Do we have the fruit of the spirit in, embedded in everything we do? And when I pull back, when we look at our communities and look at our communities, our, you know, culture at large. When we ask that question, unfortunately, no, we have the opposite. We have divisiveness, uh, hatred instead of love. Instead of peace, we have anxiety. Instead of joy, we seem to be rather depressed about nature of the Christian church. Yeah. So there are exceptions. And I'm happy to list those ex exceptions, but by large, we have failed in our individualized discipleship. Mm -hmm. We talk about it for individuals, but we don't ask the larger community and culture question. In your work, at, at various points, you refer to essentially the embodiment of the fruits as a sanctified imagination. Yes. And you say at one point, in a world of sanctified imagination, we'll come to see dominion over the earth as based not on power and domination, but on loving stewardship. Yeah. And then you say that was something I thought was very interesting. We are not able to fully love until we begin to lovingly name 
the world around us. And so I wanted to ask you what that means and what that looks like. I mean, obviously naming is an inherently imaginative act and a creative act, but what does it mean to name the world around us and how would we cultivate that kind of sanctified imagination? Yeah, so I talk about Genesis 2, Adam naming the animals, which is the first act of creativity in the Bible by Adam and by any of us. And so naming the animals is a poetic act, this, this you know, capacity to imagine and make. And when we are naming, and, and that's why we need poets mm-hmm. to not just name things as categories, but name them extravagantly, name them beautifully, name, name our situation, the fractures that we're in with extravagance. And that's what Amanda Goldman did in the inauguration. Her poem is this exquisite naming of our time. And that's why we respond to it. That's why we think, once again, poetry is back. You know, TSL used to fill Wembley Stadium. <laughs> now Amanda Goldman can. You know, that, that's, that's a spectacular thing that happened in this time of pain and fracture. So human capacity name is the beginning of all making. In naming, we're paying attention. We're being honest. We're being somewhat vulnerable because whatever we make or name may or may not be good, right? So we're taking that risk. (laughs) Now, fortunately, in Eden, when Adam named an animal, that was it, right? God gave authority, and the word authority has the word author in it, right? The word authority is naming, given the power and the permission to name. And God doesn't say, giraffe, are you sure you want to make it? Giraffe, you know, no, God says, yes, that's a great name. I think I I read in a subway poster once that Bronx Zoo has 4,000 species of animals. So so that's a 4,000 yes, affirmative yes that that God gave Adam. And, and, you know, that kind of climate, right, is very different from what we have. You know, I tested myself when I, I had small kids, like how many times do I say no, you know, <laughs> rather than yes. <laughs> and it turned out to be like 80%, but <laughs> yeah. So, so naming is, is a very important aspect of also affirming, right? Receiving affirmation or even by naming, we are affirming that existence in, in a way that leads into, in my mind, new creation. So not only is naming part of making, but mending is also yes, part yes. of making. Yeah. And um, in this book, as well as several of your other recent yeah, works, you yeah. discuss the ancient Japanese tradition yes. of kintsugi, both as uh, illustration as well as a metaphor yeah. of the potential of the artist to not simply repair what is broken, but to, in a sense, reimagine and recreate something that has been damaged into something even more complex and beautiful. And I was hoping you could explain a little bit about what Kintsugi is and what it means to you and why you believe that in your own words, we need to have a Kintsugi culture. 
Yeah. So I, I have a piece here, Sherry. This is a Kintsugi bowl that was mended by my friend Esther Moon in our first Kintsugi Academy. This bowl was fractured and you can see the fracture here. We use Japan lacquer. But instead of in a West, Western way, if we were fixing something, we make it so it doesn't look like it was broken. In Japan, out of tea ceremony tradition, refined in 16th century, there was this idea you might have heard of wabi-sabi, which is Japanese concept for beauty. But that was really, that came out in, in uh, 16th century Japan out of high tea tradition. When an important tea ball breaks, families of tea masters will often hold on to the fragments for several generations. And then they will give it to a kintsugi master, a Japan lacquer master, to mend it, not hiding the flaws, but accentuating the flaws, and then putting gold on it, and thereby making the fractured bowl more valuable than before it broke. So it's a beautiful metaphor for new creation. And when you think about it, what Esther did here is, is also great because by the way, this was the first time she did Kintsugi, so it's pretty amazing. But not only she mended the fracture and made it new, but she added a design to make it even more accentuated, right? So this, this is a profound way that imagination and art, artistry can look at a fracture, anything that, that is fractured, which we, we know, as we know, especially in DC, there, there's a lot of fractures. But instead of saying, we're going to fix this, right? We, we look at the fragments, we name the fragments, you know, and, and then we say, what is something new that can come out of these fractures? Rather than running away from those fractures, let's name, walk into it, hold on to it, and create something that uniquely comes out of those fragments. And again, Amanda Goldman's example comes to mind because after the Capitol um, riot, she changed her poem in response to that, but she created something new, taking that opportunity, bringing something beautiful to heal us with her words in a time when words were so debased. And, and that kind of elevation is something that an artist can do. And that's, that's what a Kintsugi master has always done. And so part of our journey moving forward, as we struggle with our fractures and shutdowns and, and the ongoing difficulties that we will face, what are some of the ways that we can look at those things, very painful things, but see something new in them? And that takes a different mindset. It takes patience. It, it, it takes love. It takes love to say, even though this is broken, I'm going to treasure this. Instead of trying to fix it, I'm going to mend so that I can make something new out of it. And, and if we can do that, then it's going to change how we look at the world, how we look at ourselves. Imagine a church when somebody new walks in and they tell their stories of fracture. Instead of saying, oh, we have a program to help you. 
instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, but we welcome you because, you know, you can be like us. What if the whole community held the fractures together as a Kintsugi master would? And maybe some traumas require several generations. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that might be true. But what if we had a, a place, you know, where broken hallelujahs can be embraced, invited? It, it, it's something that we ourselves say, praise God you're here because your fragment is so unique and, and, and we need you. <laughs> you know? And we want to be mending here, healing together because all of us are broken. And we're so glad you're here. One theme I've just sort of perceived in, in talking with you is one of the first steps to mending or making is, is seeing. And as we talked about last time, one of the things that you talked about Kintsugi Masters doing is actually beholding, looking at the fractured bowl for quite a long time before... Yeah. Uh, before starting a recreating process. And in your book, you actually talk about your own practice of simply sitting in front of a work yeah. of art for an extended yeah. period of time. And I think it, you said it takes you at least 15 minutes or so yeah. before you can see and that we're yeah. actually yeah. sort of trained to categorize and move on. Yeah. And I have a feeling that probably many of our viewers would be really intrigued by that concept, right. but also like, where does one even start? So I yeah. guess the question is, what are, what are the steps, what are the practices, or how does one learn mm-hmm. to see deeply? Yeah, or hear deeply, or, you know, I think we are created to be able to take in experiences Mm -hmm. and really be able to experience transcendence through all things. Uh, There are burning bushes everywhere, right? We just stop taking our shoes off. We just learn to slow down and, and look and hear. There's so much mystery in the world that we, we are missing constantly because we're so busy going from A to Z. And again, those things are not by themselves wrong. It's, it's just that I think we're learning in this time of shutdown that when you slow down, you notice some things deeply and that might be painful. You know, maybe that's why we're so busy because we're trying to run away from our traumas and our brokenness when we really don't have to, and, and, and part of what I said about the church is, church should be a place, right, where you do come together to slow down, to experience God's transcendence. And, you know, many places like museums and concert halls, they can help us as well. You know, when I, I tell people that, you know, the, David Brooks came into my, my exhibit in New York and I said, you know, David, it's going to take you like 15 minutes to see my work. And he was like, what? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and he actually sat there for 15 minutes and he said it was astonishing what he saw. Like he couldn't believe it. It, it was, He thought it was a monochromatic blue-green blue, painting. And he said, I saw a whole galaxy open up before me. And that, that experience alone will bring us to healing because it, we are so used to being overly categorized and creating this epistemological defaults of just categorizing, identifying that person and then, you know, and then moving on. 
but if we slow down and actually observe, even people that we don't agree with, <laughs> you know, even situations that we are uncomfortable in, when, when we allow ourselves to be an artist and, and say, you know, I'm here to observe, I'm here to take in, I'm, I'm going to take my time, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to look. And after a while, you, you begin to see an entirely different world. That's what happens when we fall in love. Things slow down. That's what happens when we see a beautiful sunset, fireworks in July skies. Our brain is opening up. And by, by the end of you know, an hour of watching this abstraction in the sky, we feel somewhat more whole. We feel connected to the person next to us. And, and so everybody's had this experience. We, we, just, we just don't think that, you know, because art, you know, is, is so strange, we can't tap into it. You know, every time you have a meal with your family or your loved ones, I mean, this, this is something, you know, like, like it's different between eating the same meal alone and same meal with your friends, right? What's the difference? Well, there's conversation, there's acknowledgement, there's naming, there's exchange of blessings. That's what makes the meal taste better. So it's not just, we're not just, you know, machines that, that are digesting. We are made for love. We are made for community. We are made for these conversations that points to the abundance of God. When we, we are on a journey toward that, we all become artists. We become artists, certainly of the kingdom, but artists who are makers, we're all makers. So that's how I think Kintsugi generation can, can be birthed. The, by the way, the, the, the younger generation already knows this and they're already practicing. It was just our generation needs to just learn from them <laughs> because they, they understand that culture wars are ultimately futile in the very values that you're tr trying to protect. You end up decimating your own ground every time you fight that battle. So younger generation is already done with that. They, they're like, no, we care about the world. We care about the environment. We care about community. We care about creativity and imagination. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful because of people like Amanda, you know, people who, who speak into the divide with that exuberant and fantastic rhythm, you know, as God sings over us our young people are singing back at us. And that's a sign of hope that I think we can all, you know, learn from. We're going to turn to some audience questions. And I see we already have a ton of questions that have come in. So there are several questions, it looks like, that have to do with what churches can do to welcome artists, including questions from Rodney Moore and Melanie Weldon Soyset, who asked, I'd love examples of churches that have a particularly robust uh, theology of making. What fruits, expected and or unexpected, have such churches seen from their making practices? And how can artists lead in the church? That's a really important, profound question that I, you know, I sometimes have trouble answering. <laughs> I, I've been involved in church planting for many years, and it's rare when we see an example of a uh, true community that is, um, that, let's say, bias toward making. Um, I consulted a church uh, in, in Tokyo. It was a church plant by a Singaporean team. 
Dr. Uh, Richard Mao uh, introduced me to them and said, Marco, there's an interesting group. Um, and I was going to Tokyo. So I met with them and they asked me, you know, what, what do you advise us to do? Because we have this beautiful space, a small space, but beautiful in one of the most, um, um, you know, elite uh, residential areas right next to a park. Um, and, you know, this was a church planting team. And, and I said, don't plant a church. <laughs> this is Japan. So, you know, my answer may be different in other places, but I said, don't plant a church. No one knows what a church is. But create, create a space for families. I, I, you know, as I was walking over, I noticed there were many families, moms with their children in the parks on a Saturday afternoon. I said, what if you just reached out to them and created a Saturday afternoon program for making for children? Just did that, no, you know, bait and such thing. Just, just say, we want, we're here, we're, we're a church, but, you know, we, we are here to serve you and we want to make sure that, you know, your, your children are well served um, and, and that mothers can rest, you know. And, and so uh, about a year later, I, I went back and this was the first church in which they did everything that I told them to do, you know, I, as a consultant, I was astonished. They literally created a, this church, it was not a church, but, but it, it was really a place for making. And children were running around and, and, and making things. They had, you know, everything on the, the tables. They, they had artworks. They had, you know, uh, theater groups come in and work with children. And there were these moms, all of them non-believers, like as part of this community in a single year. And, and I, 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 I thought to myself, you know, it's, it's amazing what happens when we access making. And, and by the way, moms were making too, <laughs> you know, they, they were like painting and they were having fun. Um, and and I, I, I think that's a great example of if you can just remove some of the paradigm, uh, you know, um, lockdown or what we think a church ought to be, maybe we should ask our neighbors, what do you need? <laughs> and oftentimes that need can be met with access to making or allowing a community to create something uh, together. And so uh, perhaps, you know, it's it, it maybe in a paradigm shift um, of, of what a church ought to be, that can be considered as one of the ways that we, we serve our neighbors. Oh, that's great. Hillary Farley asked, I find so much fear and perfectionism that I can barely create. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for someone to step out of their fear and into creating art? And then Janice Freitag asked, if churches really embraced a theology of making, would more of us amateurs compose our own worship songs, write our own curricula, or paint our own artwork for the church walls? In our desire for excellence, have we outsourced all of our creative endeavors to professionals and intimidated our congregants into being mere consumers of culture rather than makers of it. Yeah. So, right, if you're not making, you become consumers. Uh, imagination is always at work. So if you don't love, you will be anxious. I mean, it's just a simple calculation, uh, maybe too simple, but you know, I, I think perfect love casts out all fear. 
And if we're not making, that means we're not loving. If we're not loving, we're not making, right? So, so if, if we're not doing those things, we become consumers of conspiracy theories. <laughs> we, we, we are taken over by fear and anxiety. And, and so that's why it's essential to reclaim our place as makers. And, and by the way, those standards don't really mean much. You know, um, especially with technology the way it is. Yes, there are certain uh, levels of expertise. You know, it, it took me 35 years to get to where I am, um, and that takes hard work. But you know, it, it it's not like you know today, right? There, there's well, there's app for everything, so you know that that helps. But but this whole idea, like like a simple omelet. Like, let's start with that. <laughs> Something that is that has only one ingredient on, on the recipe, you know. And, and w- like, we have become so distanced from our, our hands and our knowledge of integrated knowledge that we, we're afraid to venture out in, into, like, actually being a fully human person. So, we certainly need to be loved. But, you know, first thing I, 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 I would say is like, you know, if you touch anything, right? And they, they've proven that if, you, if you're a gardener and if you're touching dirt, it actually makes you happier. <laughs> Something about us that is connected with our hands and, and, and our bodies. So we need to be doing something with, that, that creates something with our bodies and, and that would open the path. And you need to be in a community where, you know, other people are doing that and they say, oh, it's easy. You know, Kintsugi kit, anybody can do. A, a six-year-old can, can do it. And we, we made it safe, uh, food safe for everyone. In a span of two hours, you can be a Kintsugi, you know, practitioner. <laughs> uh, but what that does, that is, perhaps different from other way of fixing things is that we learn to begin to appreciate that there are broken things everywhere. <laughs> right. Mako, thanks so much. Yes. Uh, there are so yes. many good questions or uh, regret that we couldn't get through them all, but thank you to each of you for participating. I'm going to give Mako the last word. I wrote this benediction at the end of my book, which I will read. It's a benediction to makers, which I said is all of you. Let us remember that we are sons and daughters of God, the only true artist of the kingdom of abundance. We are God's heirs, princesses, and princes of this infinite land beyond the sea, where heaven will kiss the earth. May we steward well what the creator king has given us, and accept God's invitation to sanctify imagination and creativity, even as we labor hard on this side of eternity. May our art, what we make, be multiplied into the new creation. May our poems, music, and dance be acceptable offerings for the cosmic wedding to come. May our sandcastles, created in faith, be turned into permanent grand mansions in which we will celebrate the great banquet of the table. 
let us come and eat and drink at the supper of the Lamb now, so that we might be empowered by this meal to go into the world to create and to make, and return to share what we have learned on this journey toward the new. Marco, thank you so much. It's always a delight. Yes, great to be here. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.